What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I'm actually re-recording uh, the intro to this podcast today because the guest is Preston Pish. He is the part of the team behind the Investors Podcast Network and the co-host of the We Study Billionaires podcast. He's uh, quite a well-known figure in the Bitcoin community, very bullish on Bitcoin. I've always appreciated his insights and his commentary. And so uh, we had initially been scheduled to speak last week. It got bumped to Monday. And then, of course, we had the huge sell-off in global stock markets and oil and Bitcoin on Monday. And then I had subsequently recorded the, uh, the intro to this podcast to try to release it for Thursday. And then, uh, well, we all know what happened Thursday night in the Bitcoin world. One of the biggest sell-offs in history. I'm sure a lot of you were glued to your screens watching uh, the carnage. Anyways, I don't know why I felt like recording a new intro. Uh, it just felt wrong to go with an intro that didn't address what happened uh, yesterday on Thursday in the Bitcoin market. Obviously, the sell-off was probably uh, more dramatic than even the more bearish people were expecting. But for me, as much as I wish I had more dry powder to actually capitalize on the drawdown, at no point during uh, the sell-off did I question my conviction, did I you know, question my involvement in this space. And being on Twitter much of the night watching this go down, I saw a similar sentiment uh, among many people. And that was just so awesome to see, just that how strong the conviction is amongst people for this thing that we're all engaged in. The show is still extremely relevant because Preston and I talked about a lot of the global macro issues that are affecting stock markets, bond markets, currencies, and of course, Bitcoin talked about the stock to flow model, what his expectations are for Bitcoin's price leading up to the halving and, and beyond, and just kind of a general commentary on what seems to be like a turning of the corner. At this point, it seems like we are in a recession globally. And the coronavirus is obviously a big catalyst for that, a big black swan. And so we just talked about, is this the moment that a lot of us have been waiting for, a lot of us have been talking about for a long time, where the stress of the system and the mismanagement and the misallocations and the abuse and manipulation of the system is finally breaking under its own weight. And what that means for society and social structures, what that means for Bitcoin, and ju just generally what that means for the future, and perhaps how best to navigate what may be on the horizon. So as I said, you know, I've been listening to Preston for a long time, really uh, appreciate his commentary on things, and he definitely did not disappoint in this conversation. So hope you enjoy. All right, man. Well, look, limited time and so much to discuss. So let's just dive in and we'll dispense with the chit chat or maybe save it to the back end or do it some other time. But, you know, we, we got to get into the meat and potatoes of this. Looking forward to this. I've been, you know, obviously it's been a crazy day. I'm actually, it's fortunate that we rescheduled this and it wound up being today because there's so much to talk about. But before we dive in, I've been excited all day, but before we dive in, for people that aren't familiar with you yet, maybe you can just give a brief background and then what you're into, what you're up to these days, and then we'll just dive right in. So I got my start um, really kind of being a huge Warren Buffett fan. And uh, I would say I, I really became a hardcore value investor through the 2008, 2009 experience because it was just 
you know, it was, it was nothing that I had ever experienced in the financial markets before, you know, like most people, I took a shellacking and, uh, you know, you just learn a lot through that experience. And I think that it, you know, you talk to a lot of, uh, investors, the ones who always kind of carry this bearish mindset or kind of always look at things with a bearish kind of flavor or ones that kind of learn through a bear market. And so I, I would probably characterize myself as one of those kind of people from the 2008 to 2009 experience. And, um, was, I guess I started off with a really simple thesis. My thesis was who's the absolute best investor in the world. What books have they read? And, um, let me just study the living heck out of that person and, and study the books that they read and who influenced them in order to try to replicate whatever that approach is. And, um, you know, I, I wrote a couple books myself and then I started a podcast and I'm really been kind of in the financial space, really the financial media space, uh, whether books or podcasts or YouTube or whatever for a decade now. So, right. Yeah. What, we're what's here now? What's been your, like, were you always just an independent investor? Or did you, you know, work in uh, different companies as a career prior to that? Or if you don't mind well, saying? Yeah, no. So one of the things that I learned about Buffett early on was, you know, this guy's not running a hedge fund. He's, he owns a business. Right. And so why I always ask myself, why is he not like, why isn't he doing this? Like everybody else? Why does he have a business instead of a hedge fund? Well, lo and behold, the reason and I guess this is my spin on why he's done that is because in the times when you have everybody giving your money in in the hedge fund space, they're giving you the money all at the wrong time. They're giving you the money at the top when everything's overpriced. And then you have to buy overpriced when you have that liquidity. And then when the market's melting down, and I wouldn't even call what we're seeing right now a meltdown, at least not uh, March 9th when we're recording this, um, I would say that you have a correction in place, but it's no shape of the imagination being a, a recession or anything like that. So, but when you get into a recession, people are taking all that liquidity away from you right when you need it to, in order to be making all those awesome buys because everything's at, at a fire sale price. So Buffett kind of flipped that on its head by basically owning a business. So if the market's overpricing your company, you can sell shares of the business, raise liquidity, and then you have that liquidity in hand for whenever things melt down, and then you can buy up all these other non-operational subsidiary stocks. And then whenever the market is tanked, right, now you have that liquidity and you can take advantage of it. So it's kind of neat the way that he formed his business. So I really enjoy talking about finance. I really enjoy studying it, writing about it. So it kind of evolved into me creating my own company and having a media company that is structured in a very similar way to Berkshire Hathaway. You know, obviously, it's, it's not Berkshire Hathaway, but as far <laughs> as the, uh, the structuring of it, it was, a, it was of a similar mindset. Right. So should I infer then that your media company invests in other media companies? Or you just mean that you create media around finance and, you know? Yeah. So, so I look at it as... Every dollar that the company makes, I can invest it two different ways. I can invest it operationally back into the business through expanding products or starting other shows or whatever that might be, or I can invest it non-operationally, um, either in the stock market, and, you know, you name it, whatever non-operational uh, security. Um, and those are really the two big 
the two big choices that any person running a business has. And I mean, you see this with Apple, you see this with any type of business, are they investing their money operationally or non-operationally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting, the backstory of so many of us in this space. I remember I was a, right after high school, I was an exchange student in Japan for a year. And um, I remember making an Amazon order. Uh, and so like in the evenings, I'd be at my bed and Buffett, I'm not sure if Buffett, it was a collection of annual reports. I think it was a blue, blue covered book released, I guess, in 05 or 06 or something like that. Um, and I remember like cuddling up in my bed one again, I was lonely. I didn't know anybody and I couldn't speak the language at that point. And uh, I was just, you know, in my bed, 18, 19 years old reading Warren Buffett's annual letters. So, so like you, I was, of course, everyone's enamored with Buffett because he's, you know, the best in the business. Um, or at least he has been for a long time. And uh, then went on to read, you know, the, the thicker texts like security analysis and stuff like that. In any case, um, let's break into what's going on right now. I'm not sure where to start. So I, I'm just going to pass it over to you and say, what's on your mind? Like, what's the most intriguing thing happening today in, in your mind? What have you been looking at the most? Give me your, give me your scoop. <laughs> well, I think... You know, one of the things I didn't understand back in the 2008, 2009 timeframe, and I would argue I didn't understand for quite a few years after that, was this large term credit cycle that we're in. You know, I didn't really understand that until I started studying Ray Dalio and trying to read everything I could get my hands on from Ray. And that's whenever I discovered that, hey, there's, there's the typical business cycle that everyone's accustomed to, but there's also a larger credit cycle that runs this one's an 80 year, an 80 year credit cycle, right? And then the business, these smaller eight to 10 year business cycles kind of ride on that larger 80 year cycle. I didn't understand that back in 2008, 2009. And I didn't understand that a lot of what happened back then was being driven by this larger credit cycle. So what we're seeing right now is really kind of the end game of that large scale 80 year credit cycle. And for people that have participated in the markets for the last 10 years, let's say you're a a millennial and you got into investing in the 2009, 2010 timeframe, all you know is is that the market goes up. And so whether you think you have a bias or that you don't have a bias, I would suggest you probably have a very strong bias that, that the market just always goes up. And I think for a lot of those people, they're going to have a very painful year ahead because I think that this thing's just, just kicking off. Um, and it's going to be one for the ages in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you, what you have happening right now is it's a total meltdown in the currency. Um, you're at the early stages of that fiat global fiat currency, whether you're talking the Euro, the dollar, whatever, all those currencies are, um, really starting to show some signs of some severe issues and where it where it's really going to get interesting is it's also when you have a currency failure you also have a failure in that bond market for whatever the country that's denominating debt in that currency they're going to have a meltdown in that bond market as well it's just going to take a little bit of time for that to materialize and i think what's unique about this current situation that we're experiencing is, uh, there's a really famous book that talks about this. Um, it's called this time is different really, uh, Oh, what's his name? Bill gross, real famous bond investor. This is one of his favorite books and it's called this time is different. 
And in this book, it talks about how currencies fail, how bond markets basically blow up. But the thing that's interesting about this book, and I think it has, my gosh, it probably has a hundred scenarios in history when this has happened for various countries throughout time. And, but what, what's really different about this one is um, this is the first time that we've seen it on a global scale. And I think that's what's really, for me, it's really fascinating, but very concerning at the same time when you're looking at how it's going to impact everybody in the world. But the reason why it's global this time and it hasn't been like that in the past really kind of goes back to Bretton Woods. Back in the 1944, the U.S. pegs to, the do- uh, to gold, they pegged the dollar to gold, and then all the other participating countries pegged their currencies to the dollar. So you had this mass movement for 40 years of all those currencies collectively being anchored together or somewhat anchored together. The U.S. was kind of cheating there with how they were uh, manipulating the money multiplier. And that's why we eventually came off the gold standard in 71. And so when the U.S. comes off the gold standard in 71, you got all these currencies that were immediately depegged. Okay. And then it was a race to to control the circumstances through interest rates for the next 40 years. So you had 40 years where the interest rates were going up. We had, uh, you know, for 30 of those 40 years, it was pegged to the to gold globally because all the currencies were dependent. And now you're at an end game because <clears throat> I'm of the opinion that currencies default when three conditions are met. First of all, it can't be pegged to anything. Not only and these are and statements. If you're writing code, these would be and statements. There's, there's no peg. You have your tax revenues are lower than your spending habits as the second one. And you, the, the government debt that's being issued has no yield. And so we've, we've really had two of those scenarios for quite some time, for decades. We've had two of those, scenari- of those criteria being met. But the third criteria hasn't been met until really kind of right now. Because when you look at the 30-year bond in the U.S., it's now under 1%, which I can't even believe I'm saying that because, I mean, what was it? A, a month ago, we were over 3% on the, 10, or on, the 30-year, on the 30-year bond here in the U.S. And so when you see those rates across the entire duration of the bond yield curve in real terms negative after you account for inflation, that, that's the default point for me. That's it's going to take some time for it to shake out, but that's kind of where we're at right now. So, I mean, think about it. Why would anybody want to hold a bond that's negative yielding when you can just have cash itself? Um, that's, that's when it's, it, it really starts to fall apart. The whole piece really starts to fall apart. So how these global central banks are going to manage it, they're going to have to print they're going to have to print and put the hands. They're going to have to start putting all that money into the hands of the population opposed to using QE as the insertion point. And that's going to create some really interesting things to happen in the market. So when I'm looking at all of those things kind of playing out, especially in the debt market and in the currency markets, it's going to have an impact on the equity in the stock market as a, as a fallout of all of that. Yeah. And just for historical context, for anybody listening to this, you know, outside of the current time, uh, the 30 year is below 1%, right? The 10, 10 year went as far down as 0.3 something today. Yeah. I think it was at 0.38. I think to like now as it closed out, I think it's probably at about a half or 50 basis points, but right. 
global stock markets down high single digits in Russia. We're in the teens in terms of the drawdown. Oil is at almost 40 year lows right now. Is that correct? Yeah, it's uh, pushing below 40. Right. Uh, and it's, yeah, it looks like it's approaching 20. I think it's in the 30s right now, something like that. But, it, you know, certainly I think one of the biggest single uh, drops, day drops, day drawdowns in history, or at least since, you know, maybe 87. I mean, it had a, it had a 30% drop just today, which I mean. I, I think 87 was the last time that happened, right? Or maybe yeah, that's, I the, mean, maybe that's the biggest ever. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's somewhat indescribable. And, and the thing that people don't understand that maybe aren't real intimate with the markets. So when you start getting into a lot of volatility like that, you have to think about it from the vantage point of everyone who has derivatives. So like an airline industry, they're, they are hedging their risk in oil futures in order to protect their downside. And so they have contracts, large contracts, derivative contracts to manage that. Well, there's somebody on the opposite end of that trade. It's not like the, the oil companies are just managing their downside risk. There's somebody else who's, who's allowing that derivative to be in place. And so when you have oil that tanks 30% in a day, you are lit and, and you got to think of it as assets and liabilities on balance sheets. So one company has that listed as an asset. The other one has that listed as a liability. And whenever it goes into an impairment situation like this, there is somebody's balance sheet that's just absolutely getting tore apart because now they, they're getting margin calls and you're seeing all those kind of things start to take place in order to manage this severe risk that wasn't accounted for in the volatility, in normal volatility that's now playing out. And so that kind of has like a compound. Uh, Ray Dalio refers to that as like a self-reinforcing flywheel or water wheel. Once it starts to spin the other way and you start getting these giant volatility moves, the water wheel starts to spin the opposite way so in short, I would just tell you that when you're looking at that asset liability portion and, and one person's going into impairment, what that does is it just, it starts creating that water wheel and it is actually turning the market in the opposite direction. And it's really hard for central banks to step in and try to reverse that yet again. Mm -hmm. and, in some, and in some ways, their further action may actually accelerate the, the opposite spinning direction. So you got some of that playing out right now and it's, I think it's going to get very interesting moving forward. Yeah, there's there's so many pieces of this. So I'm going to try to keep them all top of mind and pick them off one at a time with you. But one, you know, is part of the rationale for investing in negative yielding debt or zero yielding or very low is that basically, you know, as instead of holding cash, the real return would be better if you just held even if it's negative yielding, because you're going to be losing more by holding cash through inflation. Is that part of the rationale? Well, I think what's driving the buyers more for that is that a lot of it comes down to regulations at this point, where, where some of these primary dealers actually have to be buyers to a certain extent. And I'm not an expert in a lot of the laws that are driving that, but from people that I've talked to, that's where you see a lot of buyers is that they have to be buying based on some of the regulations that were passed following the 2008-2009 um, situation. So you got a lot of buyers there in, in that regard. And then I think you do have what, what you described. You do have a lot of people. I mean, think about it. 40 years of that trade always going up. And that's what we're dealing with is a bond market that's been bid for 40 years, literally 40 years 
39 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's a psychological bias that when, when trouble comes on the horizon, it's a sure thing to just buy the bond market and you're going to make money. And look at, look at what's playing out over the last two weeks. There are people that are making massive amounts of money with these yields falling apart right now in these bond markets. Yeah. Because the, the bonds are getting bid. Yeah. And you, so you made reference to 2008 as well. And, uh, you know, there, there's obvious parallels, but obviously the situation is not exactly the same. And, you know, a lot is made of the fact that there's fewer tools in the tool belt this time around as for, as far as, you know, what the governments and central banks can and may do because interest rates are already very low and, you know, they they already have huge balance sheets. Do you, this is, you know, do you think that we see in, a, in an environment as you've recently you know, just described, do you think we see something like Japanification? Because we had, a, I, I can't remember who it was, but I think it was yesterday or, or the day before, um, a Fed representative talked about you know, the Fed should expand its mandate and be able to, um, or not its mandate, but expand what it's allowed to purchase and it, to include equities. You know, and so obviously the, the, the Japanese central bank has been doing that for a long time and they hold a huge portion of the Japanese equities. Do you think as kind of a, uh, a desperate measure, because not too much else that they currently are able to do can be manipulated to kind of, you know, harness this in some way, do you think we see them expand their operations into that domain? So they can try. Um, in the U.S., they'd have to change some of the the legal framework in order to do it because right now it does not allow for the Fed to step in and start taking possession of equities. You know, it's kind of funny. You talk about the nationalization of companies uh, in like a time of war or you see these third world countries that just step in and they basically take ownership of said company. And what I find interesting is you effectively have that happening at a not at, a, at the whole company level, but at a proportional level where basically the government's coming in and nationalizing a portion of the business. And so when you look at Japan, for, exa- for example, I mean, their ownership of their equity market is massive through, and they've been just slowly chipping away at it. And I would say that they would been, they've been slowly chipping away at the nationalization of their you know, equity market, which is crazy, absolutely crazy. And when we say massive, it's some it's between fifty and seventy five percent, something like that. That's correct. Right? Yeah. yeah, you're you're on the money. Yeah. And so, where I think that this narrative runs off the tracks is, you're not changing your insertion, your liquidity insertion point. So when you when you're saying that you're going to continue to buy equities after you run out of bonds to buy, you're still taking all that liquidity, which is a straight one for one of basically. Uh, in the U.S., it'd be dollarizing the national debt, right? They're just doing a one-for-one swap of every dollar they spend. They're just basically inserting that as inflation into the system. But the way that they're inserting it is at the top of the social structure by buying equities next and buying bonds. That's why you're seeing, like, for me, when I look at the political situation playing out in the U.S., where you literally have a socialist on in one party and you have a billionaire on the other party, I look at that dynamic as being much more um, obvious to the way that we, that the, that the central banks are inserting the liquidity into the system is that they're, they're basically routing out the entire middle class of the country. And I'm not saying this from a political standpoint, I'm just telling you it from the way I view the markets from a trade tradeability standpoint, that's something that's taking place. I see that trend continuing as long as 
the central banks continue to insert the liquidity to the top half through the equity in the bond market. Now, they've only done it through, obviously, through the bond market so far. But if they continue to go that path, you're going to see a continuation of that routing of the middle class, which I think is going to drive a, uh, a much more abrasive and combative um, social construct kind of in the United States in particular. And you're seeing this also play out in all these other countries, call it Europe. They're, they're doing the exact same thing. They're not, they're not providing, and I'm not promoting UBI by any shape of the imagination, but if, you, if the government would then step in and start doing UBI, it's the same exact thing as QE as far as providing liquidity to the economy, but now they're inserting it across the bottom homogeneously, and you're going to have pretty much all your inflation metrics are then going to start to kick into gear at that point, which then a whole nother thing takes place based on those dynamics. But make no mistake about it. Central banks have to do this. The velocity of money is, you know, screeching to a halt, and that's why they have to do it. And it's all based on the fact that there's no peg to any money globally. That's what's driving this. So which whatever insertion point they choose, you have these different uh, market dynamics that are going to play out. It appears that they're going to continue to do that insertion at the top at, so far. So that's why we're going to continue to see more of the same play out politically as far as I'm concerned. Right. So print money and buy financial assets. And that, uh, that favors, you know, the upper classes who invest in financial assets or the political situation gets so dire and dramatic and you're forced to basically do helicopter money. And that means give, give, uh, cash to the people. But as a result of that, because those people, rather than investing, they're likely to spend. That's when we see the real inflation uptick. That's the general argument. That's, that's definitely my argument. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we can find many people that will disagree or have some other theory, but right. that's, that's how I'm seeing it. And where I think that it, it really starts getting interesting, so let's just say that that, that that narrative that I've got, that theory that I've got is true. So if they then transition from a insertion point to the top and they shift to the bottom through UBI, and, this, and we had a candidate that came out, uh, Andrew Yang was the candidate, the UBI candidate, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say he would have won and let's just say he could have passed that through Congress and it actually came into effect that now we're doing UBI. And let's assume that my narrative that that creates inflation is valid. Well, what gets really interesting is you have all these people that are piling into the bond market at negative interest, negative real interest rates. Okay. Well, how's the bond market priced? It's priced as a premium above inflation. At least you would think it is if it's free and open, right? So if inflation starts to step in, now everyone's going to start selling out of that bond market. You're going to see the yield start to come back up because they're going to be bid at a, at a pre, or I'm sorry, they're going to be sold at a rate that gives a premium to the inflation rate. And then how are stocks valued? Well, they're valued off of interest rates, which if interest rates are going up, surprise, stocks are going to go down. And so this policy that we've seen that has been very conducive to the stock market to just keep on running and keep going up is now put you in a position where interest rates are now at 0%. You have this strife between political classes, and you're going to have people that are going to start demanding of their government that they, hey, if you filed your taxes this year, you're going to get $5,000 deposited into your checking account 
as a UBI type thing collectively across the board. And that's how the insertion points are going to change and potentially make all of this kind of start spinning the other way. Right. And I think, has Hong Kong uh, done their helicopter money yet? Or is that just st- still in the works? Or has it actually I, gone out? I, you know, I could be completely wrong about this. I thought it was, was it Hong Kong or was it Singapore that I read? That Hong, I, Hong Kong is definitely, if they haven't done it already, that they're, they're planning it or they've, they've talked about it. 1200 okay, bucks, right. I think, per person. Yes, that's, a, that's exactly what I read was it was 1200 bucks. I just couldn't remember where it was happening. But yeah. yeah, so there you have it. You have a, you have a spot in the, in, the, in the world that's already doing it. I think that that's going to be the trend that the people are demanding. And I mean, here in the States, if, if that's the popular thing that's going to get somebody reelected, well, that's what they're going to start telling the citizens they're going to do, you know? Yeah. So, and that's a, I really, think, I don't, that's, that's a really interesting case in Hong Kong because it's not, I mean, Hong Kong is a very wealthy, you know, city state, you know, vassal state of China, whatever you want to call it, uh, obviously financial center. And even though they've had the, the, the protests over the past, you know, year or so, um, it's interesting that they're going right to that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've heard, you know, Kyle Bass and others really dig in on Hong Kong and what's going on there and in, in their banking system. And that's a whole nother, you know, uh, rabbit hole that we probably won't have time to go down today, but it's interesting that they, you know, they're enacting that at, at this point with relatively little, again, aside from the protests that are kind of unrelated to economics, uh, with relatively little protests regarding, you know, inequality or economic uh, concerns. Totally agree with you. Um, what you mentioned liquidity, velocity of, mo- velocity of money, a lot's been made of over the last six months or so, the repo operations. Can you explain those a little bit and their significance? And, the, you know, now I, I think it was just, was it yesterday or today where the limit was pushed up to 150 billion per day? I wish I could tell you I actually understand the repo market, but um, boy, I am not <laughs> an expert. I'm not. And to be honest with you, I've tried to seek out experts with no avail. And um, really? Yeah. I mean, this is your, there's, there's a tight knit group of people that truly run these type of operations and gaining access. And then more importantly, getting them to actually talk about what they think is fundamentally wrong. And maybe they don't even fully understand what's fundamentally wrong. The little bit that I do understand is I think it's, it's very policy driven. So coming out of 2008, 2009, a lot of the policy that was put in place in order to ensure that the the banks, the, the large banks in the U.S. have enough uh, liquidity on hand in order to uh, be able to withstand a, another financial crisis like 2008, 2009, dictates that they have so many reserves. And so when you look at how they're responding to the current situation, I think a lot of them are being forced to have substantial reserves. And I think some of them are even trying to maybe even have more than what's required because maybe they, maybe they fully understand what's about to go down. Um, so what you're finding is that the, that the fed is having to step into this repo market because they're refusing to do more QE because in my opinion, they understand that that has a very negative connotation to be doing more QE literally at the top of the stock market after a 10 year run. So I just think it'd be a really um, bad precedence for Jay Powell to step in. And I'm sure the financial media would go nuts 
if he stepped in after a 10-year bull market and 300 whatever percent gain on on the S&P 500 for him to then say oh yeah we're going to do more QE now because everyone would be like how that doesn't make any sense right like why would you possibly need to do that so they've been they've been able to trick the market i don't think that the market's tricked i think everyone who follows the markets closely are making fun of the fact that they're not calling it QE and that they're basically expanding their balance sheet through repo operations back to where they were before they started to tighten. Um, and so I think they've just kind of smushed the, the water balloon over to the other side and they're doing it through the repo market. And now that you're having this vol- this massive volatility due to the, due to the coronavirus, um, I think that they're in a position now where they're going to have to do they're going to have to increase the size of these repo operations. They're going to have to do QE. They're going to have to drop the little bit that's left on the federal funds rate. They're really going to have to throw like the entire kitchen sink at this thing because so much of that liquidity and the velocity of money is just getting chewed up through all this volatility. Mm-hmm. Don't you get the feeling, and maybe this was always the case because 2008 was, you know, I, w- I was watching i was interested in markets uh during the dot-com bubble but i was you know 15 16 years old so i wasn't really into it and then 2008 but don't you get the feeling that now like everybody knows what the game is every like it's not that nobody thinks and this is part of the reason why i think um the fed is uh, apprehensive about calling it qe but they they obviously have to step in and do things to Every, everyone knows how precarious it is and everyone knows they're, they're playing a, a policy game rather than an economics or, you know, true, you know, financial game. You know, they know that the stock market's been going well for a very long time and that it, you know, people really want to keep it going that way. They know what happened in 2008. They know what the response was to the crisis in 2008. And so they're basically just trading on the fact like, well, the, the Fed will step in and do X to keep this gravy train going. You know, I just feel like it's way more obvious, transparent, I don't know, than, than previous times. It's like not many people are wondering what's going to happen. We know where we're at. We're at the, the you know, the probably the, the towards the, the end of the longest bull market in history. The Fed has very few tools left in the tool belt. This is happening all over the world. It's going to be, in, you know, uh, fiat in- issues with currency. Do you get the sense too, or is that, is that just me? Um, I think a lot of people know that there's something wrong, but I don't think that a lot of people um, have a good idea on how it's going to get fixed. Like yeah, I, sure. you know, I think a lot of people are saying that they're just going to do more of the same. They're going to go into even further negative interest rates and that's going to be their weapon of choice. But the only way this gets solved is with a new currency, mm-hmm. right? Like for me, that's the end game of this. And it's not going to be in in where I think this would be really fascinating. If you didn't have Bitcoin, you could maybe make the argument that they're going to do a new currency through an SDR or they're going to do a new currency through gold. But when you talk those two paths with SDRs and gold kind of route, where I think that it's a little hard to step into that discussion globally is I think you're going to have a lot of nations that are not going to come to the table in agreement as to that being the new money or the new peg. Because all these countries have been highly incentivized to not have a peg. Um, I mean, look at China. Look at what they've done 
through the manipulation of the currency, take advantage of the fact that that the dollar is not pegged as far as sucking jobs and everything over into China. Same thing happened with Japan. They just fired all that ammunition way sooner than everybody else did. They, they ran out of that ammunition in the, in the 90s, right? So I think that the game theory on nations coming together and, de- and universally deciding on what that new peg is, is a whole lot less likely than Bitcoin just automatically making that happen. Just being de facto in the game theory. Yeah. Playing out and- yeah. And, and I think you see some of this already starting to play out. Look at the laws that they're passing in Germany. Look at the laws that they're passing in Australia. Look at how India just changed their ban on uh, crypto assets. And now they just like all of a sudden out of nowhere said, Hey, you know what? Maybe that was a bad decision. Right. And so, and I think this is another perspective that a lot of Americans lose sight of is we have taken advantage, huge advantage of the fact that we have dollar dominance. We're used to that. And we think that that is normal, but to every other participant around the world, they've been a victim of dollar dominance. Right. And so, they might see this as an opportunity to kind of level the playing field by not coming to the table and sitting down for the the next American run Bretton Woods that gives them the advantage that they're going to bring all their firepower to the table with. Instead, maybe they just might start doing something that's completely decentralized that has no governing body. They might see that more of a, of an advantageous position. So if true, that just adds a whole new dynamic to this that I don't think anyone's really putting into play. So going back to your original question, everyone, everyone knows there's a problem. Everyone's saying this is a disaster. But at the same time, I think very, very few are looking at the scenario that I just described with a high probability of outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's probably uh, where I put place a whole lot more likelihood in that scenario playing out than, oh my, most everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I think perhaps the reason why some people find that maybe somewhat unlikely is because I think everyone would agree that every country other than the U.S. uh, is tired of dollar dominance, right? The way that they've been treated as a result of the dollar dominance system. But they do have certain advantages uh, as a result of being able to create their own currency and, and manage it however they wish. Now, I take your point that push comes to shove, they'll probably take the lesser of two evils and say, okay, we won't be able to do as much domestically as we want, but internationally, we'll be, everyone will be on a more even playing field. And that's, you know, in, in, in an in a environment of globalization, perhaps that's more desirable than siloing yourself off just to maintain your own ability to create and manage currency. Where I think that, you know, I'm not saying that I think domestic fiat currencies are going to go away. I don't think that at all. I think they're going to continue to exist. And I think that governments are going to continue to demand payment uh, of that currency that maybe forces them to be able to still have those levers to basically pull inside of their country to pay for wars or to pay for whatever their interests are as a universal tax. And if you require people to, to swap their cryptocurrency into that fiat-based currency to pay their taxes every year, you can, you can force a lot of utility to still occur inside of those fiat currencies, which would then give 
the government those levers to play with. Now, you're going to lose your buying power from a, from a global standpoint. The citizens within that domestic country would lose their buying power uh, compared to every other country that wouldn't be doing those antics. And that, these, are, these are things that countries, in my opinion, elected officials around the world have become accustomed to this idea that they can just kind of print their way out of whatever spending they have. And I don't think a lot of them are, are ready, and I don't think a lot of citizens are ready to adjust their habit loop of spending and electing officials that vote money into districts. And that's going to change. If, if, if what I described as Bitcoin being a global currency peg occurs, habits, spending habits at a personal level and at a government level are not ready for that abrupt shift. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a huge wake up call. And you know what? The countries that adjust to that the fastest are they going to be the ones that prosper in, in, in the decades to come? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I agree, you know, this is often talked about in the Bitcoin space, the kind of whether or not you had these sort of tendencies prior to Bitcoin, you probably were more, uh, you know, magnified in you as a result of interacting with Bitcoin is that having a lower time preference and not being as frivolous on spending and saving and, you know, that sort of thing. And so I agree that the people that adopt that mentality sooner will, will stand to benefit. But in terms of this process that you're, you're articulating, do you, you know, and I know this is a super hard question, but do you have any thoughts on both timeline and kind of sequence of events that would see this play out? I do. (laughs) (laughs) And they're pretty bullish. So, um, you know, it's funny. I talked to Bitcoin Tina (laughs) a lot on Twitter in private messages. And he, I mean, he's a huge bull. Um, you don't say, and you know, what's funny is, is I feel like I probably, um, have a very conservative view publicly my opinions on it, but privately, I would tell you, I'm, I'm kind of a closet mega bull when it comes to Bitcoin. And I guess one of the reasons why I have such a strong bullish sentiment on it is because I guess I have such a negative opinion of the bond market. And I think that that market is so large. I mean, you're literally talking about a hundred trillion dollar kind of market cap globally on, on bonds, right? And when they're all negative yielding, that to me is just an absolute disaster waiting to happen. And so when I look at the next four-year cycle that's getting ready to play out in Bitcoin, uh, I, I think that it's going to drive some really interesting behaviors, especially in the bond market. Because today, everyone's looking at the inflation through the lens of the dollar. They're looking at inflation through the lens of their fiat. But if you even get a small number of people in finance to start viewing inflation through the eyes of something denominated in Bitcoin, all of a sudden bonds start to take a completely different shape, almost like an alien object to them. And um, I think once you start to see Bitcoin uh, you know, I mean, my expectation for Bitcoin is we're going to be at 20,000 by the end of this year, 2020. And I think that um, I think 200,000 is in the cards for the year by the year end of 2021. And so if true, and, and those, I, those opinions are based on the, 
on the stock to flow model. It's not any type of surprise. I think the stock to flow model is valid. I think that it's uh, very elegant in the way that it's been solved. I think that the person who created Bitcoin was a mathematical genius. And I think that this thing was a time fuse, kind of like a Trojan horse in order to allow the uh, entrenchment into the existing payment uh, channels and rails. So um, having all those opinions and then having the opinion that human behavior is extremely greedy and human behavior is extremely driven by fear and specifically fear of missing out. I think you're going to have a a major shift in the way Wall Street looks at this when Bitcoin passes its previous all-time high. So previous all-time high was 20,000. And I think what you potentially have at that point is you have a bond market that's yielding nothing. People are looking at the political dynamics kind of playing out this political rift between the has and the has nots. And then you have this thing that just won't go away. That's been around for more than a decade that you used to call tulips and there's wizards and all sorts of weirdness around it, but it just went over 20,000 again. And it went over 20,000 aggressively. And it has the highest sharp ratio you've ever seen. And it has no correlation to anything. And you have, you know, in my opinion, some of the smartest people on the planet talking about it. And, and as soon as you get into a conversation with one of them, they always make you look silly. So that's going to drive a whole different level of participation than we've seen in previous four year cycles. And um, I think after you go past 20,000, you're going to see a lot of people that are sitting on these ridiculous bonds that are literally yielding nothing. And then they're going to start saying, you know what, why don't I just have 1% exposure? Then all of a sudden that position's up 100%. And they're saying, maybe I should have 5% exposure. And then it just kind of takes care of itself. And then you start getting that vantage point of, hey, uh, maybe inflation isn't gauged on the dollar. Maybe it's gauged on something else or something some other thing. And then it just starts going crazy. So I think my personal opinion is that the stock to flow model is going to be invalidated eventually. And it's going to be invalidated to the upside. So everyone draws these Metcalf law charts, right? It has that and and you got your log scale over there on on the y axis. And you see a lot of people that are, you know, the I forget what the one account is, uh, Dave the Wave, I think it is, where he's drawing these out and he's, he's got these perfect little um, uh, parabolas, right, that, that kind of show the price as it's going. And I think all of those are great. And I think that they've, they, you know, like his account has been extremely accurate. But I think that you're eventually going to have those predictions break down and they're going to break down in a way that is a very advantageous for people that are holding long and they're going to break out to the upside because you're going to have this cascading effect of everyone kind of jumping on. I, I look at it like uh, almost like a rocket, right, that left, left Earth, but it's orbiting. And so it's in this really low Earth orbit, and there's a lot of gravity that's kind of holding it there. So it has to go really fast initially. And then it goes through a quantum leap, which pushes it out to a further orbit, right? And that's your four-year halving combined with your two-week difficulty adjustment that's pushing it out yet again. And so that two-week difficulty adjustment is the gravity that's holding it into that price orbit, right? 
And as you push these orbits out further and further and for further, the, the gravity that's holding it in that orbit kind of becomes weaker and weaker. And what you're eventually going to have is this separation velocity that, that pushes it out of that orbit and it just basically goes out into space, right? And that's kind of what I'm describing with, I think that the model is going to eventually fail to the upside because then it's going to become global money and everyone's going to demand it. Mm -hmm. And do you think whenever that point, up until whenever that point is, we continue to see a kind of a boom-bust cycle every four years? So, yes. I do, but I think the the thing that's driving that separation velocity um, is really kind of the bond market. And I think whenever you get the bond market in a position, because I mean, you're dealing with a hundred trillion dollars of market cap for this. And if that starts to break down and it starts to separate, that money's going to go somewhere and it's going to go there very aggressively. And so my opinion is that yes, you're going to continue to see these four-year cycles, but you're only going to see them as long as the bond market can remain solvent and and people continue to believe that that's a sound investment. Which mm -hmm. I I'm not sure you're going to be able to sustain that in four years. Right. My personal opinion. I I I don't know, but it it wouldn't surprise me in the least bit if this is kind of our last four-year cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, right at the top of the show, you you know, we, we were referencing what happened today and it's a big sell-off day, but you were saying it's not quite the meltdown. Maybe it's the beginning of, of the meltdown at the beginning of the cycle. Um, you know, we haven't had our Lehman moment, let's say, do you, you know, when do you see that happening and what do you see as being the catalyst for it? I, I really don't. I think the catalyst for the start of all this is definitely the coronavirus, just because your demand is just, I mean, it's, it's been crushed, yeah. absolutely crushed. So that's what kind of got the water wheel spinning in the opposite direction. I think some of the events that would make it reinforcing um, would be Deutsche Bank failure, right, over in Europe. European banks are looking disastrous. Mm -hmm. um, Italian banks, disastrous. So if one of those banks fails, absolutely, that's going to give you another push lower. I think another thing that's kind of fascinating, I'm looking at the oil market really closely. And now you're in this unique situation where, you know, the Saudis and every low cost producer of oil, meaning they can pull it out of the ground for next to nothing, has not been enjoying the competition here in the West with the frackers. So, I mean, think of how would you act if you were one of them? Well, hey, here's my chance to snuff out my competition. So as prices are going lower, let me lay on even further supply. Now that the demand's drying up, let me push the price down to $20, $25 a barrel. And then let me keep it there for a quarter. Take these people to the cleaners, flush them out, take all that market share back and not only take it back, but then literally cut my, the supply, the aggressive supply that I've been putting on the market. And let me just start taking it all off the market and let me rip the price up to $100 a barrel, $120 a barrel, whatever it would be. I, I could see that happening. And then where I think that that would impact the rest of the market is, hello, inflation's based on a, a large chunk of it is based on oil prices, right? So let's just say that scenario plays out. Let's say you have $70 price of oil. Well, it's relative to where it came from as far as 
how inflation's being measured. So if it was down at $25 and it rips to 70, right? Uh, your inflation is going to go sky high. So how's the bond market going to react to that? The bond market's going to sell off like crazy because all that inflate, it's, it's priced as a, a premium above the inflation, right? So that's going to sell off like crazy. Well, if interest rates start ripping higher, how's the stock market going to respond? Well, the stock market's going to have an even further meltdown and sell off because, I mean, all these cap M models, right? So those are some of the things that I kind of see on the horizon that might not even happen for three to six months from now that people that are screaming by the dip today are not even remotely thinking about as being in the realm of possible that I see as being way higher than 50% probability. Right. So you're seeing all this in, in that kind of a time frame. three to six months, we see this level of volatility and change. Well, I mean, if you go back to the 2008 timeframe, you hit your top in the third or fourth quarter of 2007. And then the market went down from 2000, from the end of 2007 to basically the start, or I would say the summer of 2009 is when you saw your bottom. Mm -hmm. So if you're using a similar timeline, I mean, that was a year and a half to play out. That entire bear market took a year and a half to play out. And I mean, let's not fool ourselves. This thing has been pumped way higher than anything we saw in 2008. So yeah, I think you could see, I, I, I could see this thing grinding out for two years from now, to be honest with you. Yeah, it makes me think of a, a tweet I actually put out today, because when you look at the, the, the European banks, when you look at the bond market, when you look at, you just pick, it, pick an asset class all over the world, right? Um, I, and the, the tweet was something like, you know, Bitcoin will win because it's a war of attrition and it'll be the last thing, the only thing left standing because there's, you know, every other asset seems like it's, you know, if not doomed, has a, a lot of uh, darkness ahead. It, is that how you, you kind of see this? Is that one of the reasons why you are interested in Bitcoin? Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in Bitcoin mostly because of the thesis of, I think, fiat currencies are broke. I think they're going to fail and there has to be something else that steps in to replace that or to assist in, in that somehow. And so, and then I'm in the other part of what I love about Bitcoin in particular is the market caps only like 200 million or $200 billion right now. Right. And so when you look at what something like this could be, I mean, come on, you're, it's salivating. Yeah, it's salivating. I mean, I would, I would say at a minimum, you're looking at a $10 trillion market cap for something like this. So, I mean, come on, there's, there's 50x right there, Yeah, assuming that plays out. So I, that's where I'm looking at it as being it, like, I just can't, I can't even understand how somebody could not have exposure to it, but I can understand why people don't understand it. Sure. I, right? agree, I, I agree with I, that. I, I think most people just have never invested the time to even understand this I mean, come on, we're talking about 80 year credit cycles. How many people do you have conversations with that even remotely understand that mm -hmm. because they've never dedicated the time to, to try to understand it. They're doing other things. And, and I understand that. So, um, you well, know, that, that, that's one of the critiques of the current, you know, fiat system is that you have to almost be a professional investor to manage your wealth in a system like this because of the way it's structured and because of the way it moves and because of the risks and because of the inflation and all that kind of stuff. Whereas if we return to a, a sound money standard, and obviously we, we hope and think it should be Bitcoin, 
then far less effort would have to be devoted to just the very simple task of you work, you have a surplus, you want to store your wealth for the future and not have it leak value, be debased as you wait for that future time in the future where you want to spend it. It's a pretty simple request, you know, and I think we'll look back historically or historians will look back and it's, I think it's unavoidable that this period is not looked at as like everyone must have been taking crazy pills because to think that you could just create value out of thin air globally on mass and have it work out is insane. And I think it'll be seen as such and our generation will probably be criticized pretty heavily for it. Yeah. I mean, it, when you look at how long it played out, you can understand how it, how it can take place is because it's happened over multiple generations multiple generations. You're not just talking one generation. I mean, this, this thing has been playing out because you got to think about when are people in their prime that they're actually impacting decisions? I mean, they're probably in that space for 20 years and then the next generation kind of comes along. So if you're using that 20 year period of time as kind of like the prime of decision-making and you had 80 years that this all played out, um, you had quite a few decision makers through those years that, that, didn't understand what their predecessor necessarily did and what people behind them were doing. So uh, you can see how it, how it's happened. Sure. But it's, but it is frustrating to think that for me, it's frustrating for academia to basically not be able to call this what it is. And I, I think that they have their head in their sand. And I think a lot of that is based on, um, you kind of have a monopoly based on policy for everybody to get an education and all these things, which are, are great intentions of the policymakers. But when you manipulate the, the free market, what you find is that these nuances happen where, you know, professors get tenureship, professors then get lazy and p- professors just teach the same freaking thing mm-hmm. for 30 years and don't, and they can tell their students to shut up and give them a C if the student disagrees with them. So that whole incentive structure is, is set up in a way that they can stick their head in the sand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the status quo is very intoxicating, you know, and groupthink is real and, and momentum, social momentum is obviously a very real thing. And I think that's why one of the reasons why I love this space is because Obviously, there's exceptions, but a lot of people are very objective thinkers. You know, they, they try to gather as much context as they can, historical, different dom- uh, you know, subjects and domains, smash it all together and see how much clarity they can bring to their perception of this thing. And that's why, it's so, that's why I do the podcast. That's why it's so great talking to people like you and, and all, so many other people in the space, because they're able to seemingly, at least, you know, we all have our biases, but partially step out of the status quo, step out of the, the, the time you're in and look at things from a bit of a different angle and see where things are, are going wrong, what makes sense and what doesn't. And I, I just, like I said, I think it's mass, uh, it's a mass delusion, illusion, uh, intoxication that, that this hasn't been looked at more objectively by, as you mentioned, the people that are in positions to study it and, and influence things and things like that. I think you just have to have a severe amount of humility to step into some of these conversations. Yeah. And if, and if somebody says, Hey, idiot, you've got to think of it this way because you're wrong. And here's the 15 reasons why you're wrong. And they make you look like a fool. I mean, that happens to me on a daily basis on Twitter. And that's why I, I use Twitter all the time because 
where else can you find somebody who gives two craps about your feelings and is there for the mental exercise and for the critical thinking exercise? Yeah. And that's what I find in, in the space. And when you're wrong, man, I mean, you gotta, you gotta chew that humility up and, uh, and that humble pie, but you know, that's how you learn. And when people have a big ego and people always think that they're right, they cannot step into that space. So they 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 can't handle that. They can't handle it. So they go and they stick their head in the sand and they continue to make bad positions and they continue to lose a lot of money. And that's, you know, that's what it is. Yeah. And you know, the, the space gets some criticism by some people for its quote unquote toxicity. But like you said, I think it's, it's just that. And it's great that, that, you know, especially Bitcoin Twitter is filled with Anon accounts. So people don't even have to worry about, you know, their reputation or any social backlash. They just come right at you. Like you're a, you're an idiot. And that was a stupid take. You didn't consider this, this, and this. And I totally agree. Like you either come to that and say, man, screw these people. Like, you know, they're just mean and toxic and they don't know what they're talking about. And they're too overconfident. You leave, or you're humble enough to be like, maybe I was wrong about that. Maybe I was looking at at that the wrong way. How can I, and and then fair enough, fair play, push back and be like, no, you're not considering this. And that's the dialogue that happens on Twitter. And that's why, you know, that's why we're all here because I guess we are the people that, that, that suits us, that, that we love it. Right. That, that type (laughs) of dialogue is, is what we're here for because we're not overly concerned with being right or sorry, we're not overly concerned with us being right. We're concerned with the truth. That's the thing that we want the most or the greatest approximation that we can come to. And I mean, I block people all the time, but the people that I block are the ones that are making personal attacks with literally nothing hanging on the end of the attack other than it was personal. And, you know, there, there was no substance to an argument. There was right. just, you're wrong. And I think you're dumb. It's just like, okay, well, blocked. sure. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But you know what, this, this makes me think, you mentioned Ray earlier, and I think I, I saw that you hung out with Ray a little bit earlier this year, maybe at a football or hockey or some sort of sporting event, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he, he talks about the idea of meritocracy a lot, you know, he's written books about it and it's kind of his shtick now. And obviously he's been very successful as an investor, but he is not um, interested in or a believer or whatever you want to call it, a supporter investor in Bitcoin. And I have, like, I kind of question his sincerity of the idea merit- meritocracy you know, thing that he preaches about, because if that was actually how you approach things that you either didn't understand or were new to you, or you were trying to understand the, 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 the amount of information out there around Bitcoin. And then as we've just been discussing the number of people that are willing to engage in dialogue and they're informed and articulate, et cetera. I can't imagine that he's made a genuine effort to inform himself on it with the amount of, of, you know, uh, information out there. What's, did you broach the subject with him? What's, what's your take on it? So I don't mean to disappoint people's feelings and, and, <laughs> and I did not ask him about Bitcoin whenever I was, with him. I was, I was with him for probably, uh, <laughs> I was probably with him for an hour and, um, on that, on that day. But here's the thing with Ray. So if you're Ray Dalio, what does everyone talk to you about? They talk about the markets. Mm-hmm. So, um, he, we were actually talking about biology for almost an hour, and uh, we were talking about uh, a book that we, you know, that had recently come out on biology. Um, 
if, if I was going to tell you my opinion, and I have no idea if this is true, but this is just kind of my take on, on Ray and Bitcoin. Sure. So you first have to start off with his lens of the world. His net worth is what, 16 billion, 18 billion or something like that, his personal net worth. So he doesn't need to be right or wrong on Bitcoin to have one iota difference in his life at all. Right. Does he want to be right on, on all these different financials? Of course. But I think in the grand scheme of things, like if Bitcoin went to a million dollars a coin, Ray would just be kind of like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. That's great. So let's take a closer look at this. Maybe we need to start taking a position on it. Right. That's kind of how he views it from, from his lens. That's how I would picture he would view it based on knowing what his net worth is and just kind of how he's managing risk. Cause he's looking at his site picture is, I want to have exposure to the right things. I want to have, I want to buy something with a really high sharp, sharp ratio and something that's enough things that are uncorrelated, but not too many things that are uncorrelated. Um, so he's looking at it through that lens. And I think whenever he looks at Bitcoin, um, he's looking at it as an extremely small market cap that still has yet to prove anything about becoming global money at this point, because it's 200 billion market cap. I mean, it's, a peanut in the grand scheme of things when it comes to currencies. Now, if the price would, let's say the price went over a trillion dollars, you start seeing the volatility come down. I don't think the volatility is necessarily a concern for him because he'll just, he'll adjust his position size in order to account for that. But I think uh, he's probably not going to take it serious until it's probably over a trillion dollar market cap would be my personal opinion. And I think after that, you could see him potentially change his mind on it because he is, I mean, dude, he would change his, his mind on something in the, flash of an eye. He will absolutely ask questions. He has no problem saying, Hey, I used to have this opinion, but today I have the exact opposite opinion. Um, I just think that he's kind of viewing it through that lens more than anything. Right. And why didn't you bring it up with him? If, if you don't mind my asking, I was enjoying the conversation. <laughs> uh, I, I so wonder- I'm a huge, I'm Sorry, a huge fan of Ray. I'm a, I'm yeah. a absolutely huge fan of Ray. Um, for me, it was more fun for me just to continue to talk to him mm-hmm. and I didn't want to spoil the conversation by bringing something up that I'm sure many people bring up to him and many people bug him with. Right. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be a nuisance. I didn't want to be a bug. I was enjoying the time with him and enjoying the conversation. And, and here's a little side thing. I thoroughly enjoy talking about biology, probably as much as I enjoy talking about finance or any other crazy topic that I enjoy talking about. But what so in, for me, it was very fun. What in particular about biology? Uh, we were talking about longevity. We were talking about um, this new book that came out called Lifespan. But your interest, and, I mean, what do you just broadly biology? Is there a particular, you know, sub- Um, Yeah, really kind of just any topic within biology um, was fair game. And why so are you so it, interested in biology? Um, I like the complexity. I think I like how complex it is. I kind of look at the body as is kind of like a machine and the way that it just kind of goes in there, how you have proteins that are reading the DNA and then coming out and creating, you know, all these different kinds of proteins that are like miniature robots that go and perform all these functions inside your body. I just find the whole thing absolutely like breathtaking whenever you can, uh, get a chance to kind of hone in on a particular topic. So the, the, this new book, this lifespan book was fascinating because it's talking about these sirtuin proteins that can kind of go in there and fix your DNA and, 
and more your epigenetic factors. It fixes your epigenetic factors and kind of how that can extend your lifespan. So I don't know. We, we were talking about that for quite a while. Yeah. I love that stuff too. And we'll, we'll have to save that uh, conversation for another, another time. Uh, but speaking of biology, um, I've seen a few tweets from you on Twitter. You know, the coronavirus is a fairly polarizing thing. It's people say, it's just a flu. Don't worry about it. And the other people say global pandemic, everybody, you know, stay at home. Don't go outside. This is going to be, this is, this thing is massive. Where do you fall on that and why? So I started noticing in January, mostly because of the, uh, the numbers kind of coming out of China. As soon as I saw some of these like staggering figures of like how demand was drying up in China, I started, I, I immediately go, okay, who's the, the number one authority that's on the ground in China right now that I can learn more about this. And so I find a couple people on Twitter that are, you know, slipping some videos under the firewall and some of that information was coming out. And when I saw that, I was like, Hey, this is going to be a way bigger deal than I think people are tracking at this point in time back in January. I noticed, um, that a few other people in, in the, economic space were kind of saying similar things. And so I just started having conversations with them. And, you know, for me, I just kind of saw it as a matter of time before it was going to go around the globe and, and kind of wreck havoc, havoc, like we saw in China on demand. One of the, the first things that I saw that kind of just like literally made my mouth hit the ground was when they went to Wuhan and the, I think the population in Wuhan is 9 million people. And I saw they literally barricaded every road going in and out of Wuhan. And, you know, you look at New York City's population, it's, it's 9 million people. So here's a city that's bigger than New York City, and you literally just cut off every single road leading in and out of it. And so I started saying to myself, this is not normal. This is, this is something that I have never seen in my lifetime. And I think that this is probably going to be a very bad thing in the coming months. And uh, so far, that's been a pretty accurate prediction as far as the impact economically. Um, as far as the actual impact from a health standpoint, it seems like it's very devastating for the older population. Um, from the, the numbers that I looked at, you know, if you're over the age of like 55, 60 years old, I think the death rate's around 15%, which is extremely high. And so if you're really young, I don't, I don't think that you're having anything remotely close to that as far as the death rate, although it's definitely higher than flu as a percentage wise of the number that are infected. So I think it's something that's probably a way bigger deal than people are giving it um, respect for. I think that it's the, the real impact of all of this is going to be logistically the, the supply train, uh, the uh, supply chain impact is massive from an economic standpoint, but from a medical standpoint, I think it's just going to totally inundate the medical systems here, the medical facilities here in the U.S. and really kind of globally in a way that the, like the complications of this is really kind of where the, where the problem is. And so then you only have a limited supply of faculty and staff or you only have so much staff on hand at these hospitals that are being able to handle this constant churn and the bed count and all those things are putting a really stressful demand on the medical, the doctors, the nurses, everybody. And so that has an ability to then infect them um, because they're older population of doctors. And I think that's where this is really concerning for me more so than anything else. And, and unfortunately, I have to say, you know, here at the beginning of March, I think it's going to get 
probably quite a bit worse than where what we've seen so far. I think that you might see the peak maybe in the May timeframe of, of how bad this is going to get. And I think, you know, adding to the headlines today, I think Italy just announced that like the whole country is under quarantine or state of emergency or everyone's being encouraged to not leave their homes unless absolutely necessary or like the whole. Yeah. It's wild. And so when, when has that ever happened yeah. in our lifetimes? Yeah. You know, I, I, the thing I get a little frustrated with, and I think one of another reason why I've been taking it so seriously is because, and I know this is a really contro- controversial thing to say, and, and I've been hit really hard by a lot of people in the medical community on Twitter when I say this, but, you know, the, there was a level four lab right there in Wuhan. And I mean, they're testing and they're, they're looking at, I don't, I don't know if they're necessarily testing things that would be uh, biological weapons but it's definitely in the probabilities, right? That lab has had issues in the past of certain pathogens actually getting out of the lab. That is a fact, whether people want to believe it or not, it's a fact. And when you look at the uh, the solicitations for work that had occurred with HIV mixing with the coronavirus, mixing with SARS for that specific lab, for research to be done with those three pathogens being mixed together, that is a fact. That those statement of works are out there that they have been actually, you know, shared vigorously. The fact that you had the military base there in Wuhan come out and talk about how pathogens need to be handled uh, more carefully in the future at the beginning of January. All those things to me tell me that this was an accidental leak. Um, and people do not want to hear that. They, that is not convenient for them to hear that. And so when I'm looking at the impact that it's having on people from a health standpoint, I personally treat it with a whole lot more uh, caution than it's just some naturally occurring. And it could be that I, I look at the world through like an array of potential things, right? right. Like it could, it could be that. And it could also be a pathogen that was accidentally leaked, right? Like all those things are real possibilities because we don't know what the absolute truth is. But when I see those many things kind of line up, I'm saying this needs to be maybe treated a little bit more carefully and with more respect as to how dangerous it could potentially be. And I'm not saying that to scare anyone. I'm just talking about the realities, right? Sure. And either prior to this, you know, it's just as part of your general approach to, uh, you know, life and uh, uh, potentially uncertain outcomes, or as a result of this, have you, you know, quote, prepped in any way? Have, are you, have you prepared in any way? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would just, I would say it this way, you know, just like how I look at the markets, I'm always looking for asymmetrical trades. And so when I look at, hey, if I go out and buy three large bags of rice or whatever, um, I can continue to eat that into the future. Now I might eat it for a really long time, but the cost to me is nearly nothing for something that would give me that much of a logistics tale of food. Right. Yeah. And so I, of course I went out and made some decisions that at the time felt a little silly, but, um, protected my downside risk, which I thought was massive and asymmetrical mm-hmm. compared to the cost, which was nearly nothing. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent with you, man. I, I look at, look at it through the, you know, kind of two lenses. One is just, general peace of mind, you know, whatever I'm constructing in my life, you know, it's in many cases, I'm trying to establish peace of mind in a very uncertain world. Uh, and that's, you know, 
a big part of that is just shoring up vulnerabilities wherever I see them. Now, some have a higher probability of requiring, you know, likely to be engaged and others do not. But the other part is, you know, I was just thinking in terms of, like you said, it's a relatively small investment. So I, I you know, a number of years ago, I bought, uh, you know, a whack of d dried food that's good for 25 years, right? And, uh, you know, I got laughed at by friends and all the rest of it. But I thought, look, if I never use it, if in 25 years I have absolutely oil shock, bad weather, power outages, political turmoil, war, if I don't need it, then I'm totally happy with throwing that money down the drain if, if for that outcome, because I'd rather not need it. But if I did need it, I would want and need nothing more. I mean, it's sustenance. It's what keeps you alive, right? And yeah. so uh, that was, an, that was a no-brainer for me. It's like, yeah, sure, I'll spend a few thousand bucks on it. Yeah, I mean, people are going to tease you until they don't tease you. Right. It's right. kind of like this bond market right now. It keeps bidding <laughs> until one day it just stops bidding. Yeah. Uh, Preston, last question before the rapid fire part. And I just want to know your feelings on the big, a lot of people have been questioning if there's a big, you know, sell off like we've seen today and it persists, how does Bitcoin react? Is it a risk on asset and people liquidate to cover, you know, other cash positions or positions or whatever? Or does it kind of, excuse me, take up the mantle of a safe haven, an uncorrelated asset, and as a result is kind of like a, you know, stability in these, in these tumultuous times. What's your take on that? Um, it's, it's hard for me to look past the math a lot of times. So like in this last week, Bitcoin went down with the market and you hear a lot of people saying, oh my gosh, Bitcoin should be performing right now. And it's not. And they're looking at seven data points or whatever, right? Like that's for me, from a mathematical standpoint, like I just, I roll my eyes because it's just such a small amount of information to form a narrative or an opinion on. If, if I was going to form a narrative, I would say, yeah, it was probably hedge funds that were trying to rebalance their volatility risk and their portfolio. So that, that might've led to the sell-off, but, the, the reality is, is I, I have no idea what caused it to go down this past week, which, you know, it went from 9,000 down to like 77 or whatever. I look at the correlation over the last 10 years and the correlation is literally 0% with the S&P 500 and Bitcoin. So that's, that's my default position as I'm looking at how it's going to perform moving forward. So I think it's going to continue to have no correlation to the S&P 500 or, or anything else for that matter. I think what drives the price of Bitcoin more is that example I was talking about earlier with the rocket kind of being held at these different gravitational levels in that four-year cycle and the stock to flow being the intrinsic value for each one of those orbits. And as you push those orbits out, meaning the stock to flow adjusts with that four-year cycle, I find that that two-week difficulty adjustment gets weaker and weaker. The gravity that two-week difficulty adjustment, holding it in that orbit, gets weaker and weaker. And then the thing that's going to throw it out of that orbit is going to be a sovereign country that enters a position and they come in with a $100 billion bid, right? Something like that is going to disrupt that orbit and then it's going to push it and then it's going to be kind of the, the whole stock to flow model is going to be invalidated to the upside. You know, I think, th I think that's much more of a likely scenario for me, the way I'm viewing it. Sure. All right. This is the, the last part. So this is the rapid fire part, the namesake of the podcast. Um, 
so we've got about 10 minutes, so you have to be fairly concise with these. There's about uh, 10 of these and then just some word associations at the end. If you want, if you want to pass any of them, you just say pass, no problem at all. All right. I hope I, I hope I don't give any embarrassing responses. <laughs> all right, let's do it. The first one, and this is the more the most uh, involved one. Let's say, what is money? It's a unit of exchange. I guess I was wrong. It, <laughs> no, I want to hear what you're going to say. No, no, I, I mean because usually I, I I say that one, and people are like, oh, you you want me to do answer that quickly? That's such a huge question. But there you go, nice and concise. Uh, if you had to explain Bitcoin to a ten year old, what would you say? Holy moly. Um, I would, I would describe it like this. I would say, so I would first define what blockchain, the, the new blockchain technology, like what is that technology? And the way I would describe it to a young kid is I would say, you know, on the internet, you can, you can copy a picture and then you can share that picture with as many people as you want. But with blockchain technology, if you give that picture to somebody else, that digital picture, that's the only thing that that person can, like once you give it away, you don't own it anymore. You don't have possession of it anymore. Only that other person can, can take possession of that digital picture. So now all Bitcoin is, is instead of it being a picture, it's a unit, it's a number. And once you give that number or that unit to somebody else, they're the only other person that can possess it because of the blockchain technology that allows that to happen. So when you're dealing with money and you're dealing with Bitcoin in particular, um, the fact that we now have something that has a fixed baseline of units and now everybody's sharing those units and exchanging those units. Now you have a sound money that everybody can agree upon. That's, that would be my best try. At I like it. I like it. Uh, how will you know if Bitcoin has failed? What will be the, the hallmark or the tells? For me, it'd be a failure on the stock to flow model to the downside. What does Bitcoin's success look like to you? Um, basically what I, I guess it's the inverse of that, which would be a failure of the stock to flow model to the upside. What's your favorite or, you know, most go-to uh, learning resource for Bitcoin? Uh, Jameson Loop has a resource page that has, oh my gosh, you, you have to put it in your show notes. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, it's just, you won't find a better resource than that. Yeah. I think, are you familiar with Dare Gigi's Bitcoin resources? No, I'm not. Oh man. You got to check it out. It is so, I mean, similarly deep. Um, I think it's Bitcoin dash resources.com. Uh, what other, no, I'm going to skip that one. What piece of advice would you give to someone just entering the space? I would tell you that you're going to lack conviction unless you actually understand what the heck's going on. You have to understand the technology. You got to understand the game theory. You got to understand the monetary background. You got to understand where we're at in the current debt cycle, the large debt cycle, small debt cycle. You got to understand all those things. And there's many more. You got to understand all the network effects. You got to understand all of these graduate level things that you could get a PhD for in every one of these little facets, right? Mm -hmm. You got to understand all those things to have conviction, to be a long-term holder with conviction. And I would argue that uh, the best traders out there, I, I just don't know how they're going to be able to outperform somebody who just buys and literally holds due to the capital gains that they're going to be contending with in a, in a uh, trading type style uh, strategy. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I, 
I look at the multiple over the 200 day moving average. I use the, the uh, stock to flow model to use my buying insertion points. And whenever I buy it, I just hold it. I don't, I don't trade it at all. Like I just don't sell. I just keep buying. Yeah. And a little side note, cause I, I know your history of, of selling the previous, you know, top at 18 K briefly feeling regret and then being vindicated a few weeks later. Um, do you, do you think you will attempt to trade the next cycle top? No way. In, no way. Cause, in hell. Cause you never know when it's going to be the, you know, the real rocket. Is that kind of the, the thinking? Mm -hmm. My, if I was going to put odds on how the next four year cycle plays out, I'm putting higher than a 50% odds at it going all the way and that the stock to flow model is going to invalidate itself to the upside on the next four year cycle. I think wow. that's more, pro I personally think that's more probable than not. Um, bullish as hell, know, Preston. Yeah. I mean, in that, and I am, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on it and but most of my bullishness is actually more, like I said before, I'm that bearish on the bond market. Mm -hmm. um, so that money has to go somewhere. And I, I think that that's probably why I'm more bullish on Bitcoin than maybe other people. Yeah. But I mean, that's the thing I'm watching. And, and no, I won't be selling that top. Um, now, if it goes up and, well, I, I guess I just don't know how I could how I could sell it because you always got the sovereign, you got the risk of a sovereign nation stepping in and bidding it and really kind of just invalidating the model to the upside. And I don't, I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to step away from that risk. Yeah. Can Bitcoin be stopped? If so, what is Bitcoin's biggest vulnerability? If not, why not? I would say, I would say that a vulnerability is if for some, for somehow you get, um, you know, all the nations kind of come together and they say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to peg our currency. We're going to go to an SDR. Or we're going to do like another Bretton Woods and they roll it out and, uh, they're able to actually shape wall street and all the, all the, all the other major financial centers into, <laughs> I just don't, I'm trying here. I'm, I'm reaching. I just think that the game theory on that is so slim, but I guess that would be a risk right. for, for Bitcoin specifically. Yeah. What have you learned about yourself or how have you changed, if at all, as a result of learning about and interacting with Bitcoin? I really don't know how to answer this. Uh, I, I think one of the things we talked about earlier on the show, as far as uh, just, you have to be humble. You have to, you have to tell yourself, I could be very wrong about this. And I could be very wrong about it. We could all be very wrong about this. Because mm -hmm. if there's one thing I've learned in financial markets, there's, there are times I've put on trades and I'm just like, I am going to murder this. This is going to be massive. Right. 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 And then I was just dead wrong. Yeah. And, um, I've had that experience. I felt that pain. I felt those losses before, but I'm, and I'm not saying that's what's going to happen here, but I guess the thing that I've learned is even though I have a ton of conviction on Bitcoin and I've read so much and I've talked to so many people and I've tried to shoot as many holes as I possibly can through this argument, I think for me, the big learning point was you, you really have to approach every conversation with respect for the other person. And you always have to understand why are they seeing it that way? Um, because they've got a vantage point for a reason all their life experiences have led them up to that point of view for a reason. And now it's up to you to try to extract and understand why they've have that point of view. And as long as 
they continue to make sound arguments. You need to, you need to listen to those people, even if you might not agree with it, there might be something that you're missing and you have to have a respect for the potential that you're missing something. And Bitcoin is, it represents that in spades, in my personal opinion, for the community. Yeah, totally agree. Ballpark estimate of Bitcoin's price in five years. I mean, it, it really comes down to whether the hypothesis I have on the bond market is valid. So I'll give you two. I'd say if the, um, if the price is, um, if, if the bond market miraculously does not implode in this farce of, you know, monetary policy and fiscal spending can stay afloat for another five years, which I think is not highly likely. I think the price is going to be right at the stock to flow valuation of around a hundred thousand, call it 90 to a hundred thousand is where I think the price would be polarized. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of that would be because you've had so many difficulty adjustments that would, that would bring it into that orbit. Um, if I'm right about the, um, the bond market kind of blowing up, I think you're going to be at a million plus. Right. All right, President, I'm getting you out of here on time. We got one minute less this, left. This is the word association part. Hang in there. Let's get, re- let's get right into it. Democracy. Beautiful. The Lightning Network. Elegant. Governments. <laughs> I'll just laugh. Human rights. Human rights, uh, a must. Violence. Despicable. Trump. No comment. Ego. It is is a enormous root of evil. FOMO. Don't do it. <laughs> Wealth. Uh, the definition is highly confused. Privacy. A- another must. Hate speech. Disgusting. Gold. Uh, I don't have much of an opinion on that. Guns. Same. No comment. Revolution. Uh, that can be a good one or a bad one. Socialism. <laughs> uh, terrible. Family. The best thing ever. Inequality. Disgusting. Hell. Not going there. Liberty. Uh, something we need to, uh, protect. Energy. Uh, so I, I, my immediate thought was uh, like actual like energy, like production, like oil and all that kind of stuff. But I, I would rather talk energy of a person, which is vital. And Bitcoin. Brilliant. Preston, we did one minute over. My apologies. Um, <laughs> real, real quick, did you want to, real quick, did you want to uh, direct people anywhere to some of your stuff before we sign off? Yeah. So um, if people want to, uh, Hold on one second. I'm sorry. I'm getting pinged for my next meeting. (laughs) We'll be done in two seconds. Yeah. So um, I just want to give a handoff. So I have a podcast. It's called We Study Billionaires. Uh, We talk about finance. We don't talk about Bitcoin exclusively like a lot of other podcasts. We talk uh, pretty much any type of financial instrument. We talk about all the billionaires and kind of their positions and why they made decisions and this and that. yeah. So if you want to check out the podcast, that'd be great. I'm on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. It's just my first and last name, which is Preston and Pish, P-Y-S-H. Uh, I'd love to interact with you there. And John, I just want to thank you for bringing me on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm really impressed with your questions. 
Well, man, I really enjoyed it too. And I know we could chew up three, four hours. So uh, we're going to have to save that for a meet space uh, face-to-face someday. But until that time, all the best. Uh, and yeah, can't wait to, to talk again in the future. Absolutely. We got to do it again. All right. See you, brother. Take care. See ya. Thank you. Thank you.